Welcome to another edition of Rick Willis in San Diego. I am joined by a gentleman I've known since 1999 when I first started in media. Some say that Hugh Jackman is the greatest export from Australia. Some say that Vegemite is the greatest export from Australia. And some say that Minute Work is the greatest export from Australia. But I disagree with all three of those. I think this gentleman and his family are the greatest export of Australia. Former NFL punter with the Chargers and Vikings and also played with the Amsterdam Admirals and all pro guy. I Honestly, Darren, his name's Darren Bennett. I, I can go through your accolades, blah, 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 blah. But you're probably, I know when I do that with you, you're, you're just like, eh, it's what it is. Mate, you missed Al McPherson and Greg Norman. And Rod Laver. Who My, oh, you know what? Yeah, he's, on, he's, he's, oh, geez. I didn't even think of Rod Laver, the last guy to win the Grand Slam. I'm not even in any of that ballpark with any of those people. They're all oh come all on, tremendous, you're tremendous Australians. You're you're, you're I, too I, much. I, I read a book years ago called Away Game, which was uh, people from Australia that had been successful overseas, and it, it made me feel so inferior because it was like Jamie Nasser who was running forward, El McPherson who was a super from this like yeah okay. So you know, I'm just just an Aussie who had a good a good experience overseas, mate. But I'm not in that league. <laughs> what well, I have to ask you: Have you ever eaten Vegemite, and do you still eat it? And do you, uh, did you listen to Minute Work? Because I used to have uh, I used to play that Minute Work. I come from a land down under, and I think uh, I was trying to figure out what Vegemite was. So they they kind of correlate with each other. Um, come on, mate! No, you've got to be kidding me. He's he's showing me Vegemite right now. What's but then Promite too? So oh, you know, those are terrible. What the, uh, not if you grew up in Australia, mate. There's okay. a lot of vitamins in those things, and <laughs> so it, yes, it's funny because I used to I used to just do what I did then. I just plop it on the table at training camp. Mm-hmm. And guys would be like, "Oh yeah, man, land land down under Vegemite. Hey, can I have some?" I go, "Sure." And then they would put it on about this thick, as thick as oh. peanut butter on on, which would kill a horse. So. <laughs> I would never say anything. They don't put it on. So we always put it on with butter first. The butter sort of right. tempers the Vegemite taste. Oh. And then you put it on very, very thin because it's a, it's okay. salty and it's strong. So it's very, I, I, very strong. I've nearly choked some very famous football players trying Vegemite at training. <laughs> Let's start with the beginning. I know you're, again, you're going to be, you're going to be very humble about this, but you are the godfather of the dropkick in the NFL. And does that mean that Rosemary's the godmother? She's the godmother of most of the Australians that have come over. We've had most of them stay with us over the years since I retired. It started with Matt McBriar when he went to with June Jones, asked me as he was leaving to go to University of Hawaii if there was any other Australians. And Matt McBriar, who played at the Chargers at the end of his career when Mike Cyprus got injured and went to two Pro Bowls with Dallas, he went and played at University of Hawaii with June. and. You know, so it started with him and then, you know, uh, obviously uh, Ben Graham and Thab Rocker and all the other Australians that came over. And now there's a new generation of kids playing college football. And we have an Australian here who took over from my son, Thomas, at TU and mm-hmm. he's doing great. So, you know, I wouldn't say I'm the godfather of it, but uh, it's, you know, the drop punt is definitely in right from high school, even Pop Warner kids use it now and right through the pros. So makes me proud every time I watch someone kick that ball. For people that don't know your story, I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll start it off. So you're finishing up playing Australian rules football. You get married to Rosemary. You come out to San Diego on your vacation and I'll let you finish the story for your, for your honeymoon. What happened from there? So every year in Australia, we used to have a long kicking contest and 
the year. I won it uh, a couple of years, and the last time I won it, the first prize was two tickets to Los Angeles. And so it was at a local high school, and and uh, I actually beat Ben Graham. When Ben first started mm-hmm. at Geelong, he finished second, and I had to hit probably my longest punt to beat him at the, at the end because he st- had such a great league. So I said to those people, look, I'm going to propose to Rosemary and I'm going to use these tickets as a honeymoon and we're going to go to America. I still didn't have an intention of playing American football at that stage, but my strength coach in Melbourne, Chris Jones, offered to make a couple of contacts for me and he went to the University of Oregon here with North Turner and mm-hmm. knew, knew Norv and had gone to training camps when Norv was at Dallas and also in, uh, in Miami. Mm-hmm. And so those guys sort of hooked up and he said, you know, what teams need punters? They had a, a guy here who ran the software for the combine, so he knew what teams were looking for punters. And at the time it was San Diego, uh, Tampa Bay and New York. And at that stage, you know, New York was sort of scary to me. I had no <laughs> idea where Tampa Bay was. Yeah. But we had friends. We had friends, the Collins family were in Pacific Beach in Marie Collins and uh, Al Collins that had done business with my dad. So I said, well, I know where San Diego is. Let's go see the Collinses and we'll visit San Diego and see what happens. And that's, you know, and then I met Chuck Kreefer and, and Bobby Bethard and, and uh, they put me on practice squad 94. And then I went and played, as you said, in Amsterdam in the World League in 95 to get some, some practice on film or some games on film. Mm-hmm. And then came back and started in 95 uh, um, at the Chargers and then played on from there. So did you make the call to Bobby Beathard or how, how did you meet those guys? So Chris Jones, through Bill Anzok, the guy that was doing the software, Rosemary and I were on a train trip up the east, up the west coast and we were at Seattle. And uh, they said, look, if you can get here this week, we'll work you out. So my first workout was literally 10 pumps out of my hand in the stadium at Qualcomm at Jack Murphy oh, Stadium. No way. And they had a they had a USA or Mexico versus China soccer game that was on. So they turned the sprinklers on to kick me off the field because they didn't want me on the field. So I got 10 pumps in before they turned those sprinklers on. And the next day they brought me out to practice. And Sam Anno, who Sam's been coaching, he coached at USD for a long time mm-hmm. after he retired. And David Bin took over from him. But Sam hit me, you know, some snaps the next day. And, and people famously know the first one hit me right in the face because I had no idea someone could throw a ball. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. He hit me right in the face. I shanked a five-yard punt. I looked at all the coaches, and they were laughing behind their hands. And, like, this, <laughs> that's, and I, I really, honestly, I got so angry, and I was like, well, that, that's the end of that, stupid. You couldn't even catch the ball. <laughs> and talking to Sam over beers years later, he said, you know, that's the hardest snap I've ever thrown. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He said, I, I didn't want some guy from a – John Kidd was the punter at the time. He goes, I didn't want some guy from Australia coming in and just showing us up. But I put the I put the next one over the fence into the parking lot about seventy five yards. Wow. Wow. That was uh, that sort of got their attention, and then you know, and then I met with Bobby afterwards, and and he said, look, you know, if you go home and practice this, uh, we we'll bring you back next year. So anyway, so that's what happened. I ended up on practice squad the year we went to the Super Bowl against the 49ers. and I at the time, Coach Ross said to me, you know, we're going to put you on the practice squad, and I said, Coach, look, I'm twenty nine, too old to be on practice squad. And he said, when I was the special teams coach in Kansas City, we had a kicker who was 39. So he goes, you've got plenty of time to do this as long as you learn the game. And I, I'll forever be thankful to him and Coach Briefer for putting me on practice squad that year because I learned so much about the game. I had no idea what I was doing and they would put me on scout team and I would just bump into people because I had no idea what a tight end or a linebacker or any of that sort of right. stuff was. So 
that year was a great learning experience for me. And then the Amsterdam year was great because it proved that I could do it in a game. Right. So that was that sort of the process and the timeline of how that happened. The one thing before we get into your your punting is when I did I've done one of these podcasts with John Carney, who you yeah. yeah. He told me the story of your because you were his holder and you were even when you said he didn't know the game, you were his holder and had to hold for him and just go through it with us. Well, so when I first got there, I had, you know, I tried to learn every process. I tried to learn out what you had to do in coverage, where you had to be on the field and how to tackle in helmet and shoulder pads. We obviously tackle in Australian rules football, but mm-hmm. we don't we don't use the pads the way you guys use them here because we don't have pads. So Dan Kwan, who was our assistant special teams coach, uh, I jacked him up a couple of times not understanding <laughs> what to do. And so they asked me to tag off on Stan. And I thought I thought tagging off was like jacking him up. So that's what I did. So Sam was this poor little poor small guy. And he's a baseball player, he's a good athlete, but he just, you know, I, I jacked him up a couple of times. So anyway, Stan taught me how to hold. And so we would spend time on the sideline learning how to hold. But it was, you know, it's not a natural thing for us to be kneeling right. down and doing that sort of stuff. So it took me quite a while. And I had also had the benefit of Coach Ross and Bobby Method. They put quarterbacks in for the first couple of years. So I had mm-hmm. Gail Gilbert held and uh, Sean Salisbury held while I was learning my craft. And then mm-hmm. after that, I hopped in and held for John for a little while and then, you know, held for the other kickers we had after John went, went to New Orleans. The one I really remember, it was against KC. It was Tamaric Vanover, correct? Yeah, that, that was, yeah. Oh, that you just, you just blew that poor guy up on, on no. national TV. Oh, no, that, so that punt, that punt was Andre Hastings against Oh, Pittsburgh. okay. That, okay. Yeah. Tamarick Vanover was uh, an overtime punt in oh. Arrowhead. He, he took me 85 or 95 yards for a touchdown. Oh, jeez. And it's, go, still, it's, it's still grates on me because it was a nice punt. And uh, one of our good friends, too, was one of our special teams linebackers, Glenn Young. He snuck his nose inside and Tamarick realized that that edge was open and off he went. And it was – they. Afterwards, which I had no idea, the reporters came up to me and said, you know, that's the only Monday night football game ever decided by a punt return for a touchdown in overtime. And I nearly punched every one of the reporters. I'm like, I don't even know that, dude. I was still, I still got steam coming out my ears and that's 20 years later. <laughs> I can, if people could see your face right now, you just, they could tell. Yeah. So now, now the one thing about you is you have a big leg. I mean, and you had a big leg in, in Aussie rules football, but the, thing that really now has made a lot of punters a lot of money is that they can do the drop kick. And you basically... Now, I'm going to correct you here. It's it's a drop punt. Because the drop, drop punt. kick, the ball... Yeah, so the drop punt actually hits the ground. The drop kick actually hits the ground. Okay. So the drop kick would be what, what Doug Flutie used to kick it oh, yeah. when he was at New England. Uh-huh. So the drop punt, the drop punt is still a punt. It doesn't hit... The ball doesn't hit the ground before it hits the court. So it's the drop punt. Everyone calls it all sorts of different stuff, but it's a drop punt. That's what drop punt. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me because I don't want to sound no like worries. an idiot. I already hey, do we're, enough of we're that. Mates. We're mates. I can call you out on stuff. Yeah, I know you can. I know you can. So how do you do the, the drop punt? Because it looks like it hurts because you're hitting off your, your foot in the nose of the football, right? Yeah. So my son Thomas punted here at TU and uh, at University of Tulsa. And after about game five of every year, he goes, I've got such a bruise on the top of my foot because he would hit spirals, but then in you know, certain situations in the game, you would hit that drop punt and he would hit the point. 
the way we teach it is we rather than hit right on the point, I try to lean the ball back about 15 degrees so that you're hitting through the big volume of the ball and trying to not hit, you know, the bones on the top of your foot right on the point because it, oh, okay. it does hurt and you get a bruise on your foot. So, you know, and there's multiple different ways to get that ball sort of vertical. And a mm-hmm. lot of the kids, American kids use what we call the Coke can hold where they hold the back of the ball, whereas mm-hmm. Australian kids are used to holding the side of the ball. Right. And then there's other people that, especially when kids are young, they don't really have big enough hands to hold the ball on the side or the top. It sort of slips right. out. So they hold it right underneath. They cradle it and then let it drop. But as long as it doesn't move, once you let it go out of your hand, there's a lot of kids that use it, you know, multiple different ways, but they still have the same effect on it. It's a great punt to watch, uh, you know, in certain situations in the game. We texted the other day and we were watching uh, San Diego State's the Matt Ariza, Ariza yeah. out of, yeah, out of Rancho Bernardo. I mean, this kid hit an 80-yarder, and I texted you, and you said that dude is, I mean, as a, as a college football player, they're talking about him for the Heisman because not only does he have a big leg, he can drop, you know, he can drop him right inside the 20. Yeah, look, I think the Heisman's a bit of an overshoot, but it's uh, he definitely should be in, this, in the conversation for the Ray guy, and it's, you know, he's an a- absolute weapon for San Diego State, and part of the reason they're so successful this year, he's probably in the last couple of years, the most NFL-ready guy I've seen. And the reason is, you know, you could talk about Michael Turk and guys like that with big legs, but Michael Turk's get-off is so slow that if you got him to speed up to NFL speed, he can't repeat those punts. And he's a bit like a – I work with a guy who's at Green Bay right now named Corey Bajorquez, and Corey was – he's from L.A. and used to come down to our Sunday sessions. Corey's problem is he'll hit you an 80, but he'll hit you a 12-yard punt too. And so punting is really about dialing that overswing back and, you know, trying to make them all around 45 to 50 yards. Mm-hmm. While Razor's, you know, he's done that and doesn't have any of those shanks, but he's also, he steps as he catches the ball, which brings him up to an NFL speed without having to try. He's already at that speed. When you bring, like I said, bring those college kids up to NFL speed, they tend to not be as consistent. Their punts are not as good. And we don't punt those big pumpkin footballs that a lot of the kids punt in college. So I think he's, he's you know, I, I was super impressed with him, the way he handles pressure and the way he, his rhythm of his punts, so much so that I text Aaron Taylor, who was a, a good buddy of ours that played mm-hmm. at San Diego. Mm-hmm. I go fishing with Aaron and we talk backwards and forwards. I text him during the game and then he actually started talking about what we <laughs> What we text about, which I thought was hilarious, but he's a good mate. But I was so impressed. I don't usually do that sort of stuff, but I, I was so impressed with how Matt was punting. I just had to talk to Aaron about it. And so I'm glad he talked about it during the game because it's, you know, I think that's definitely been one of the the shining lights of San Diego's year. Thing is, is what the what what you're talking about. People always talk about you know quarterbacks or running backs or shutdown corners or outside linebackers that are that are weapons that can help you win a game. Punting in the NFL or in any football league is a weapon because you can you can back people up into their own end zone. Or if you're backed up in your own end zone, you, you hit a couple 80 yarders like uh, Ariza. I mean, it's it's really it's a weapon in football now. I agree. And, it, and a lot of people don't agree. They think it, that punting should be taken out of the game. I think it's part of that chess match that everyone plays, you know, of, of uh, you know, deception and, and distance and yardage. And I think the punt game is, I think, an exciting part, obviously, because it was my part of the game. Right. 
but it's also it's also you know tactical and strategic when you use punts. A lot of colleges will go for it when you cross the fifty. Right. I watched the other night. Gosh, who was I watching? Oh, it was uh, Kent State and uh, Central Michigan, I think. Mm-hmm. And that one team was dominating the other, and they went for it on fourth down instead of punting, and they didn't get it. And the other team went scored, and then and started coming back because of that. So, you know, that momentum that's created by putting the other team inside the ten, I think, is a a strategic part of the game that is exciting to me. You know, people talk about Don Coriel and how he revolutionized the passing game. Can you at least, I, I got to get you to take some credit for what you do or what you have done to revolutionize punting in the NFL with your drop punt? Because no, nobody was really doing it. I mean, everybody, when they think of punters, they think of, you know, the only punter in the Hall of Fame, Ray Guy. I'm a Raider fan, but I, I still think you're the greatest punter. And, I, and I'm not just saying this because I'm your friend. I'm saying this because I think you're the greatest punter in history because you revolutionized the game like Don Coriel revolutionized the passing game. Well, if you talk to the Ray Guy, then, you know, the drop punts. <laughs> screwed the game up but it's look it's um to me they've taken it to even another level since I retired because now we only in a couple of situations did we hit that drop punt on a full field primarily it was an over the 50 yard you know inside the 20 punt to try and uh, eliminate the easy touchbacks that a lot of the spirals when they hit the ground roll into the end zone so that's where I used it but nowadays, you know, they use it as a misdirection punt on the regular field and then then hit spirals the other way. So now you've got a 60-yard punt to the right, a 40-yard punt to the left, and it really confuses the returners. So they're really playing keepings off the returner. Mm-hmm. So it's taken it to another level. And now they've added all sorts of different circus punts in banana kicks and over the falls and all sorts of different kicks to just keep that returner on the back foot. Right. You know, for me, I, I love it, all those punts. I think they're tremendous, you know, and it's uh, uh, it's the people try them. That's the other thing is there's a lot of young special teams coaches in the NFL now mm-hmm. who don't necessarily want or need those 55-yard, 5-2 hang time punts anymore. It's more about putting the ball on the ground and getting it away from the returner, which I think, which I think is that's the evolution of the game, not necessarily the drop. Another thing that's very interesting about you is we were talking about you and Rosemary, you being the godfather, and she obviously is the godmother. You've been housing punters and kickers when you lived here in Encinitas and then, you know, now now in Tulsa. You've been housing these guys for, I mean, I don't even know how long. Where, you know, I had, I've had Rosemary's cooking in it. It's pretty fantastic. I mean, I'm serious. I, you, you did well with, with, with her and her cooking. And plus, she's an, an amazing, amazing woman. Talk about that and just because you just open your home to these people. Yeah, so when I was re- getting ready to retire, there was Australian kids that were starting to come over to play college. There was one kid that was either at Arizona State or University of Arizona, and he gave up his scholarship because he got homesick, went home, and all of us at the time, there was myself, Matt McBriar, Stavrocker, Ben Graham, all took it personally that someone would give up the dream that we've all sort of come across the world to pursue. So we sort of made a commitment at the time that if that ever occurred again, we would absolutely take those young men under our wing and and give them a bit of Australia at home. And it's it's happened a bit with COVID too, you know, because a lot of these kids were sort of stuck. Some kids went home for COVID and other kids were stuck here for COVID and we didn't have a lot of kids 
come and stay with us because obviously Rick you knew our situation, but mm-hmm. you know we could we couldn't have just people flying in and, and randomly staying right. with us at, yeah. at that time. But there was a lot of kids that needed a phone call and needed just a yeah. bit of mentorship and support over here. So you know it was done to me when I was a young Aussie rules player. It mm-hmm. was done to me. You know, while I was an NFL player with John Carney and those guys, Steve Christie and those guys that were mentors to me, Morton Anderson, I played with in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like it's our obligation to pass that on and help smooth over some of the road bumps that it takes to live overseas and play play college or America or NFL. You talk about family and I know both you and I, family's uh, very important and, you know. um, Number one. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, your your son will recently passed. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get in, but he from Duchesne's muscular dystrophy. Um, but that kid, he was absolutely amazing. Can you speak to because, you know, my daughter is going through cancer leukemia treatment yeah. and our situations are different, you know. And no, it's, no, they're not, because we're both fathers that were extremely concerned about their children knew that we had, you know, a devastating diagnosis, whether it be leukemia or, or Duchenne muscular dystrophy. You've done, you know, Rick, this happens all the time where someone in the media came to do a story on me talking about punting or mm-hmm. playing in the NFL, and then they meet Will and realise that Will was the better story. That, mm-hmm. you know, and so just to get everyone up to speed, when I was in Minnesota, we had a kicking coach who I'd met when I was in NFL Europe named Doug Blevins, and Doug had cerebral palsy and coached out of his wheelchair. And when we first met, Doug was in a manual chair and he would he would use his legs to push himself backwards around the muddiest football fields. I mean, it was difficult to right. do what he did. But he came up to Will in Minnesota when he saw Will in the wheelchair. And he said, I've known your dad for 15 years and he's, you know, I've coached him. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you can't do this out of the chair. And it inspired Will. And he he coached, you know, wow. Matt McBride and Sav Rocker and high school kids. And he would come out with us when he was when his health was able to do it. He would come out with us on Sundays to Santa Fe Christian, where we would do kicking clinics every Sunday for 10 years. And so, you know, he would he was coaching with me. And when we got to La Costa Canyon. His reputation preceded him, and Sean Stovercole, who's a great mutual friend of ours, you know, Sean came up to Will and said, "Will Bennett, I hear you're a great eye for special teams. You want to coach on on La Costa Canyon? On the, you want to be a coach on our football team?" Will was so nervous he could hardly answer him. But and Sean Sean said, you know, and so he said, "Yeah, yeah." yeah. Sean looked at me and winked and said, "Well, if he comes, do you come with him?" And I said, "Of course I do." You know, so. He became Coach B at that stage, and then at, through his time at LCC, he became LCC Coach B. And Sean called him that from that day on, and still calls him that now. And they've named his named the uh, the most inspirational player award at Lacoste Canyon on the football team. He's oh, the wow. Will Bennett, yeah, it's the Will Bennett most inspirational award, and has been since he was there at the school. And we love those guys; they're family to us, you know. And it's uh, I, I will never ever forget what they did for allowing him to do that because it became his personality. And so, you know, we are, we are lifetime Mavs because of that. So, but Rick, you did a story on him. My friend, Jason Bennett, who did a thing called Aussies abroad for ESPN. 
started about doing a story about me punting and ended up doing a great a great piece on Will. And, you know, a lot of people were inspired by him coaching. And that was part of bringing guys to stay with us is I always said they came to learn punting from me. They came to punt with Thomas when Tom was punting. They came they came to learn life from Will and they stayed for Rosemary's cooking. So that was really <laughs> us in a nutshell was the Bennett's and, and how we looked after all these things. I didn't realize the whole, because I said it at the very beginning of this, I said the family's amazing, but I didn't realize it was the whole four pack of, of you guys. No, it really, it really was. And honestly, we've had probably a hundred kids stay with us over the time, you know, over mm-hmm. the last 15 or however long since I've retired. Yeah. You know, we had a young kid from uh, University of Pennsylvania, UPenn, Dan Gold, who we stayed in touch with. He's back in Australia and has kids of his own now and still talks fondly about those times when we were in Minnesota and, you know, I got into a fight with Joey Porter in pregame because of, you know, all sorts of weird stuff. And he, he still remembers. The, he goes, remember the day you got in a fight with Joey Porter? I go, yes, I do. And then Matt McBriar and then all those kids. So it started with them even when I was at Minnesota and it's been, it's continued on ever since. I would take you against Joey Porter. I don't, I don't people, I don't think people realize how big you are. Um, oh, dude, I was, I was pretty lucky that, that his linebackers coach grabbed him around the throat because it was, it was going to happen <laughs> and I had no idea how I was going to get out of it. I was talking a big game because we were ten yards apart, but uh, uh, it, it was it was. And he's a hothead uh, too. Yeah. Well, that's that. So I knew that. That's why I was drawing him up because he got into a fight with Cincinnati the week before for exactly the same reason. He didn't like anyone being over the fifty yard line, and it mm-hmm. was Chris Cluey's heels were like two inches over the fifty, and he like flattened him. And it yeah. was it, he should have got fined for it. But anyway, so it was. But it was our. It was our practice squad, the specialist, because our team wasn't out yet, versus the whole Pittsburgh team. So we were in trouble if it really went down. So oh there was gosh. a lot of there was a lot of bravado uh, we're talking. But if if Joey Porter and I got into it, it was probably not going to be a fair fight. But I was talking a big game. Well, let's do one more thing on Will because for me, I've learned so much from how my daughter has dealt with what she's had to go through. Yeah, and I tip what my have you? Team, yeah, thank you. What did you learn from Will? I mean, I'm sure that people don't realize that you can learn things from your kids, you know, just like your kids learn how, how to be, you know, a good person from you. So I learned what grace was, you know, that people showed him grace. And, and I, I learned there's times where even, you know, here living in Tulsa in Oklahoma, there's, you know, the, the whole attitude to life and equal rights for people is, is different here in Oklahoma than it is in California. So Will was my checks and balances guy. Rosemary and I still, you know, he's been gone for two months now. And, and Rosemary and I still go, I wish he was here just to ask him, We're Will talking was about- my checks and balances guy. So every conversation we had, Will would give me a different perspective on it than what I thought he would give. And so mm-hmm. even now, you know, he's been gone for two months. Rosemary and I still go, I wish Will was here to give us a, his perspective on, on those. He really had a really open mind to to equality and and he started UCSD as a political science major and that was his thoughts and I think he would have been a great a great advocate for people you know if he'd finished his degree if his health hadn't declined I think he would have been a, a great political advocate for people you know in Washington and and advocating for people with disabilities and also he, he had a really good mind for that so I I never ever second guessed what his thoughts were because it was always different to what I thought it was going to be. The, um, I mean, it's just amazing what our, our kids can teach us. And I mean, the amount that you learn, you know, and I know one of the things that you and I have talked about is listening. 
versus talking. Yes. You know, and that's a big thing, right? Because everybody wants to tell you how good they are. They just don't show you how good they are. They just talk about yeah. it. Can you speak to that? Because I know we've, we've spoke about this before. So we have a, as a society, we have an idea of what we think strength is. Mm -hmm. And then when you go through a situation like this with children and then young adults, as we have with Will, you understand that strength is a totally different thing to what you thought. You know, as a society, we look at Dwayne, The Rock Johnson and people like that, that lift lots of weights and that's what real strength is. And then you understand that personal strength and courage is such a different thing. And it's, it's an integrity that, that I think I thought I had a strength and integrity and Will taught me another level of that. So, you know, it's as seen by, you know, Will in social media life that we are now mm. doing a podcast for the internet, you know, some of the people that know you and know me in San Diego will be finding out that Will passed away for the first time. And the reason is, he gave me a list of people who he thought should know and did not want it publicised that he was passing. So it's now we're at a time where we can talk about it, but for a couple of months it was hard, very hard to talk about it. But he's like, you know, I just don't want to make a fanfare about it. And so that was his <laughs> journey. It's just, and so that was his journey, you know. And yeah. he knew what was happening at the end and when he was very sick the night before he passed away, Rosemary was obviously upset. And he told her, he said, mom, I got this, you know? And I was like, that's, that's the line. I remember when you told me that. Yeah. And it's when we were talking about that with our kids and, and I told you Karina, when they have to put her port into her chest, she said, they said, do you want me to count you down? And she goes, just do it. Just just do it. I'm like, yeah. So anyway, the other one was he, uh, he told me to play to the whistle. Yeah, He's like man, I said, I'm sorry, this is coming to an end. You guys play to the whistle. Yeah, I mean, we can go on about this forever. We'll, yeah. we'll shift gears a little bit. Yeah, here. I want to ask you. I was thinking about it, and I covered the Chargers since 1999, and you obviously played for the Chargers, and we've known each other for that whole time. I was thinking about who is the because it's two different things. Who is the most athletic player you've ever played with? And it's a two part question. Who? Really? I've never seen a 260-pound man move like that in, you know, changing directions uh-huh. and power. And yeah. so I, I would say Junior State. For me, it's not even not even close. The, you, you have to tell the story you told me about when there was the defensive lineman that was was the leg pressing, leg pressing, and he goes, I just pressed as much as Junior Seau. And then oh, he, yeah. Do yeah. you remember that one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, oh, God. His name? Anyway, he was a rookie, and I sat him down, you know, because you try and get a few of the rookies yeah. and stuff. And uh, Torin, Torin James, there we go. And Torin said, uh, I said, how you doing? He goes, oh, mate, I'm just following Junior around. He's the greatest ever. I'm just doing whatever Junior does. No, I said, that's awesome, man. He goes, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to look at his work habits and all that sort of stuff. I go, oh, that's great. He goes, yeah, yeah. If Junior bench presses four hundred, I bench press four hundred. If he bench presses, uh, if he leg presses seven hundred, eight hundred, I do, I do the same. I go, oh, that's great, Corin. Yeah. You realise that the charges workout is his cool down, right? He goes, what? <laughs> and I said, well, he goes and lifts with Joe and all the powerlift boys at Gold's Gym in Pacific Beach at five thirty in the morning. Oh my so gosh! 
But if the Chargers work out his legs, then he's done back and buys at Gold's Gym in uh, in 5.30 in the morning at, at Pacific Beach. And then he comes and does your leg workout as his cool down. He goes, really? And Junior used to... <laughs> He used to call it his, his money in the bank. He goes, mate, he goes, they don't realise how hard I work. They only see how much I work at the charges. They don't see the rest <laughs> of the stuff. So, yeah, he was doing the power lift with all the power lifting guys and then doing the charges workout as his pool deck. Those I've seen was, those workouts. Those are devastated. <laughs> those are those are no joke. So is he the best player and the most athletic player? Or does he get both those so. titles? Yeah. No, I don't know whether he was the best player. Because I think I think he developed into a guy who understood defenses better as he developed into his career. But I think he was so superior athletically early in his career that there was times where the schematics didn't really matter. Because Junior would be sort of making the call and still talking to Kurt Gavea or one of the boys next to him mm-hmm. as the ball was snapped, and he would be the last one to move and the first one to get to the tackle. You know, so athletically. I think he was just above, above and beyond everybody else. And so was he the best football player? I think he was, but was he, you know, schematically and stuff, you know, looking down the track, Drew Brees is probably the guy, you know, the smartest guy. And I, I met Drew as a rookie and, you know, Ladanian, both of those guys were just, you mm-hmm. knew that. And Drew really developed further after I left to Minnesota into what he's become. But I think, you know, if you look at the greatest player I ever played, it's probably going to be Drew, even though it wasn't while he was at the start. For me. Yeah. Uh, but maybe LT? Yeah, LT. LT was one of these guys. He's running, and you would, uh, there would be a guy in pursuit, and he would make a cut that you go, he didn't even know that guy was there. How did he make that cut and, and make the guy miss the tackle? And I asked LT once, he goes, I was looking at the big screen. I go, are you kidding? In a game, He's dodging around through the linebackers. Wait, 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 wait. He was looking at the at the jump, like the jumbotron, or the he could it, see the guy coming. <laughs> he'd, he'd sneak a peek at the jumbotron and see the guy coming, and then cut around him. Yeah, that's freaky. Oh my! Wow, that I mean, yeah. I know you have. You, you got to write a book, man. You're. I'll stop. You. You do. I mean, because... I've seen guys do it as they're cutting into the end zone to make sure there's no one coming. But he mm-hmm. was doing it. He was doing it in traffic. Like, dodge around the safety, here comes a linebacker back up and let him go by. I mean, it's crazy to do that during a game. The awareness, LT was crazy. It was awesome to watch. There are two more people that, that I want to talk about, and one is a, a good friend of yours. And, and are you a golfer by any chance? I suck at golf. But okay. one of my best friends is on Cam Smith's bag at, at Houston Open this weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, Matthew Tritton, who, yeah, Bussy, he, Bussy's been on various guys' bags over the years, so he... Mm-hmm. He uh, shares time with a guy that's the full-time caddy and spends a few weeks and was on Cam Smith's when he finished uh, second at the Masters last year, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So Bussy sort of relieves the other caddy when he gets uh, later in the season, he goes home to New Zealand to see his family. So we talk, you know, golf a little bit, but we talk more about the mental approach of mm-hmm. golfers and punters and kickers because I think that's a similar mentality. But, yeah, as far as playing golf, I suck how did you hang out with, because I know, I know John can golf and I know David Ben. That's the guy I want to ask you about David Ben because Dave, people didn't understand what David Ben had to do. He had to, I, I did a story on him up in Carson where I, I did a stand up where I had to look, look between my legs and I, and I got dizzy. 
and he used to be your long snapper. And, but not only that, David Ben, anytime you'd walk into a room, people would be like, oh, who's that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, Dave's a good looking man. And slow walking, slow talking. He's got the Tom Brady thing because they're both from San Mateo. It's that, oh, really? it's that Northern California slow talking, slow walking, good looking guys playing. But then just quietly, Dave was the best man ever to play at his position in the history of the game. Played 20 years in the league, had zero bad snaps in 20 years, snapped one to me just above my knee in like year five and apologized for a month. Man, remember that snap? He never had a bad snap in 20 years. He would come out at minicamp after not snapping much for you know a few months. He would bounce the first snap in, on field goal. He would give me laces back on the second snap, and then he'd give me 40 perfect laces in a row. I mean, it took him two or three snaps to get up to speed. And there was a time where Kevin Gilbride's like, why we have this guy snapping? And June Jones went to bat for Dave and said, when there's three seconds to go in the Super Bowl, you want this guy snapping the ball because he's, mm-hmm. you know, he just was so fantastic at what he did. He snapped my whole career, and then he snapped Mike Cypher's whole career pretty much, except for maybe the last year and a half, two years. So it was incredible to, to play with someone like Dave. He lived in Pacific Beach, and I met people in PB who said, oh, yeah, we played, P- you know, we played volleyball, and I've got this mate Dave, and I'm like, David, you, people would never know he was the long snapper mm-hmm. in the Chargers. He was just Dave being good dude. So, you know, one of my favorite guys ever, great long snapper and great person. The other one is, and this is kind of on you too, is, I mean, you were you're, you were still one of the best punters in the league and the Chargers go and draft Mike Cyphers. And you didn't go Aaron Rodgers or Brett Favre or like all these people on, on them knowing that they're drafting your, your replacement. You tutored this guy and you guys are, are, are you, I'm assuming you guys are still friends, right? So Mike is now the kicking specialist coach at uh, North Carolina at the Panthers. And literally two weeks ago, I made a phone call to him because they were struggling at Hunter. And I recommended Lachlan Edwards, who had been at the Jets. They signed Lock and they just elevated him onto the active roster because he'd been punting off the practice squad for a couple of weeks, which you can do as a, as a vet on the new COVID mm-hmm. practice squads. Mm-hmm. So they elevated him to active, and it looks like hopefully if he continues doing what he's doing, he'll finish the season out at the Panthers, and hopefully that will be a job that he can consolidate and play there. But what it gets to is Mike and I talk philosophy of punting coaching all the time. He was coaching at University of Kansas. He was he was coaching, you know, their specialists there and, and trying to mentor those kids. And and really, you know, I still we still talk philosophies on punting. So my attitude with Mike was I was 38. How much longer was I going to play? So mm-hmm. my exit meeting with Marty Schottenheimer that year was we're good. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he wanted to bring me back to compete with Mike for training camp the following year. I said, look, Steve Christie and I have got Mike where we think he's going to punt 15 years for this team. Why would you bring me back to compete against him? You know, so that was when I went to Minnesota and Marty said, this is the most honest exit meeting I think I've ever had with anyone because the guy's like, man, I'm good. We've got, you know, we've got the legacy of punting and kicking that was passed to me by Rolf Benershka and John Carney has now been passed on to Mike. And I think we've got him prepared for 15 years. And I had a sort of an argument with Billy Ray Smith about it. Cause he's like, 
dude, you fight until the end. I go, yeah, but there's a point in time where you have to pass your knowledge to someone else and let them take over and leave the punting position in, in good stead. And that's part of the frustration that Mike and I have with the Chargers since that is we've tried to do that for the Chargers. And Tom Telesco and the Chargers management have refused to help us. So the unfortunate, Mike and I talk all the time and I go, Mike, we're spending time coaching punters that beat the Chargers. It's a frustration. It's, it really drives me crazy because I don't think they understand how high we set the bar as specialists at the Chargers, and it frustrates us that the Chargers is one of the worst special teams in the NFL and has been for years. So, you know, we tried to help uh, Drew Kayser when they drafted him. We tried to help, you know, I, I sent Block Edwards there, but they they stuck with Ty Long, who Ty's hates long punts, but they're just not, you know, we have the biggest returns in the NFL because they refuse to punt directionally. And mm-hmm. so anyway, it's been a frustration over the years, but that was part of what we did with Mike was we knew that that punting position was, and that we had Nate Keating that John Carney did the same to. So we had Dave Bin, Nate Keating, and John and Mike Cypress, and we're like, we're good. Special teams is going to be great for years at the Chargers, and it was. That brings up the question, though, knowing somebody's going to, I mean, because we've all had it before I had it. You know, you know somebody's going to take your job, yet you continue to tutor them. Where does that come from from you personally? I think it gets back to what I said before, the mentors I had when I was young that are off their own bat and with that, you know, against a lot of people's better interests, they helped me and tutored me. And, you know, the mentorship that I felt from those guys and the experience they gave me has helped me. You know, I played 23 years between my years in Australia and my years here, and there was a lot of great people that went out of their way to help me over the years. And so... You know, I was 38. I didn't do it when I was 31. Right. You know, I wasn't I wasn't passing on a lot of information to people when I was early in my career because I knew they would take my job. Right. Whereas, you know, so that was the pride we had in special teams, knowing that it was that was handed to some guys that would go do it well for a long period of time. That that's that's been that's part of why Mike moved to Kansas City. It's part of why I moved away from San Diego. Because I love the love that city, I, you know. I surfed Cardiff and love living there. But once the Chargers moved to LA and they and they didn't really, you know, there was times where when Mike got injured, Matt McBride took over. Matt's like one of my one of my sons, but the, Tom Telesco sort of, you know, they don't really appreciate that sort of stuff, and so but it's a frustration for us. I, I know this is going to get a little controversial, but do you think that comes from the top? Because, you know, there, there's some of the stories that, I mean, I know a lot of stories, you know, way more stories than me about the Chargers. And do you think that that comes from, from the top of, you know, cause you're, you're there to mentor and you're there to do the best for everybody. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to phrase this, but do you think that sometimes people aren't always doing the best thing for they're doing the, the, I don't know if it's, I don't even know if I call it the selfish thing, because the selfish thing is you want to bring in the best person you can, you know, but I mean, how would you describe that? So the answer is no. I don't think there's a rhyme or reason to it. It shows in their special teams. I don't think they have, I think the last good special teams coach they had was Rich Versace. And Rich, you know, Rich moved on and he's now the interim head coach at the Raiders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so we had Steve Crosby, we had, uh, Frank Novak, we had Chuck Prefer, we had Wayne Sevier, 
they were all great special teams coaches, and I don't think since Rich Versace left, I don't think we've had a decent special teams coach, and that's nothing against George. It's uh, I just don't think that there has been. So I think um, so. Here's the there's two sides to it. If you're a general manager at a football team, you control you're steering that ship. Mm-hmm. Every retired vet thinks he can tell you how to suck eggs, and that's so true. So there's times where you know you don't want ex players to be involved in that sort of side. But when you show a, a lack of understanding at the special teams positions, mm-hmm. and someone decides for no money to just help, mm-hmm. and we have a history of the guys that we mentored put in were just as good as us, if not better, which Mike was better than me at the Chargers, mm-hmm. then you should maybe pay some attention to that when you're in the, you know, you're 29, 30, 30th, you know, in the league every right. year at special time. Yeah. And so they had Nick Novak come in a little bit, but they're not, whereas our guys are going, I'm mentoring guys at other football teams that go and punt well against the Chargers and kick field goals to beat that Chargers team. And our guys have been horrible for ten years, and that's that's a major frustration. Well, so is it is yeah. it a is it a concerted effort to be bad at special teams? No, I just don't think they know what they're doing. The well, I mean, perfect example is I, I think young young. How do you say his name? Young Ho Kim. Young Ho Koo. Young Ho Koo. I mean, that guy. That guy. He kicked for the Chargers for a little bit and missed a couple field goals, and then you know he was gone. And they've gone through what? Uh, shoot! Oh, I could go through it. Josh Lambo. Josh Lambo's, you know, up until this year when he got injured and and lost his job at uh, Jacksonville has been tremendous. Mm-hmm. They had Jason Myers. Jason Myers went to the Pro Bowl the year after the Chargers didn't think he was good enough. He went to the Jets, went to the Pro Bowl, and is now a, you know a very consistent kicker at Seattle. It's it goes on and on. They've had guys that we were mentoring that were doing well. Lachlan Edwards was in there at training camp all year last year. Lockie's going to go and, and, you know, forge a career somewhere else. But we've attempted to happen, help them. Uh, I've had conversations with them about punters they're looking at in the future, and I go, you are barking up the wrong tree. So it's just a frustration to me anyway. It's, look, I, I love the Chargers. I, I love, I think it's tremendous, the new stadium they're in. I'm not one of those people that, that felt they should stay in San Diego. I voiced an opinion, though I'd love them to stay in San Diego, but I mm-hmm. understand the business decision that De- that Dean and the family made to move up because they were protecting the market. You would put someone else in there that would take half of their market share in San Diego anyway. And so there was a protection side to it. Plus, you know, if someone gave me $500 million, I'm moving to Mars. And so, <laughs> you know... The, the charges are worth way more in Los Angeles than they were in San Diego. It's nothing against the city of San Diego, yeah. but, but by the same token, I played in I played at Qualcomm Stadium in front of a lot of Kansas City fans and a lot of Denver Broncos fans, a lot of Raiders fans over the years. So we had our chance to pack that stadium out, and it you know at times it didn't happen. I, I do, but before we get it, because we're going to get into the my favorite. Well, actually, this whole thing's been my favorite. But before we get into the, the food in San Diego, by the way, are you ever going to move back to San Diego? Or are you going to stay in Tulsa? Oh, we don't know. I mean, look, we we went back a few weeks ago. We took some of Will's ashes back, and we and we put them at Cardiff, and we did some other things to keep us attached to San Diego. Um, we have some wonderful friends in San Diego, are really good friends, and and lifelong friends that you know some of our friends were the very first people I met when I went to San Diego in 1994. And so, you know, the answer is we would love to. 
you know, we're in a situation here in Tulsa where we're building a house and Thomas is still here. His girlfriend has another couple of years at school. So once that happens, you know, down the track and they're, they're not tied to Tulsa as well, then we'll work out, you know, what our future is. But, you know, let's hope it's back in San Diego because it's really our home. We love that. I know you miss paddleboarding. I know 100%. Oh, absolutely. In fact, my mate Steve Johns actually got my old wave ski back for me for the week I was there, which I thought was so awesome. The guy that bought my wave <laughs> no ski. No way. Wait, wait, wait. What? what? Are you he borrowed. So it was in his garage for three or four years, and he finally said, look, someone, someone asked to if I had any spare skis. Do you want to sell your ski? And I'm like, look, yeah, there won't be it. If I ever come back, I'll probably get another one made by uh, some of the guys we surfed with. So I said, yeah, go ahead, sell it. And then when he knew I was coming back, he called the guy and said, hey, can we borrow it for you? So I actually got to surf my own board, which was no awesome. No way. Yeah, no, that's my, my buddy Steve. He's a, he's a wheeler and dealer. That's, so I, I appreciate him doing it. That's awesome. Uh, the other one is, is we were just chatting one time when you were coaching at LCC, and you told me, because we both had knee injuries, and you yeah. know I, I tore my patella, and then you go, hey, look at my legs, mate. They're spread out like that. And I Even worse really, now. Oh, really? You said, I don't have ACLs in either knee. And yet you played like that with no ACLs in your knee. I mean, yeah. how was that, man? Well, I mean, you know, I had, I had a few. So one of the things that people talk about is me sticking my head in on a tackle more than most punters. The downside of that is you get injured a lot and you carry those injuries because you don't want someone to take your job. Right. And, you know, my last, the last one I did was I dislocated my knee playing oh. in a preseason game at Minnesota. And my head coach, Mike Tice, said it's still one of the ugliest things he's ever seen on the on a field because I just grabbed my foot, straightened it back up. And oh, went back gosh. And, and so I've had a lot of knee surgeries over the years and I'm paying for my neck and my shoulders and my back and my knees now. So it's one of those things that you don't think about when you're a young man and when you're an mm. old man, it's the, it's the only thing you think about. So that, that begs the question, would you do it all over again? Oh, yeah. No. Oh, look, it was such a great... I saw the world, you know, playing Australian rules football. I played in Toronto. I played Aussie rules in Toronto, Canada, Portland, Oregon, and London, England, just playing exhibition games. And then mm -hmm. in American football, I played American football in Berlin. I played in Tokyo. I played in Sydney, Australia. We played a pre. pre I remember that one. Did you get the trip with uh, KUSI? Did you get? No, to I didn't. Go I didn't. No, um, I, I wasn't working. Yeah, I wasn't working there then. Um, it was ninety nine. It was. It was ninety nine. Well, that, I was an intern, and then I got hired on. Uh, after they don't usually intern. take interns on international. No, flights. no, that's kind yeah. of an expensive trip. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's so you know, and then I got to play in Amsterdam. I played, you know. So my point is, it's taken me all over the world. So would you do it again? Yes, absolutely. I would do every bit of it again. Would I try not to get injured as a 17, 18-year-old that, you know, turned into, you know, bad knees as a 56-year-old? Yeah, I'd try not to do that. But that, you know, there's part of it is if you play not to get injured, you get injured. So you've just got to, you know, pin your ears back and go to work. So that's, right. no, it's been, I mean, the life, the life we have now is because of football. And that's why it's great to pass it on with young men on the same journey as we were well, I know you're going to move back to San Diego. I, I am 99.9999999% sure because I know, you know, you were talking about your house, your building and everything like that. I know you're going to come back out here. 
Um, and I know a good real estate agent, by the way, but let's let's talk about San Diego. I have a good real estate agent and I have a mate who used to work in media who's a good real estate agent too. So I'm not tied to any real estate agent because if they sell me a good house for a good price, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Derek, you cracked me up, man. People, I, I don't think people understand our, our whole dynamic. But anyway, so this is how we end the podcast usually or always is, is talking about San Diego and just because there's so many cool places to go here to eat and, you know, one like breakfast, lunch and dinner. So this is this is how I phrase it. So if you want somebody to live in San Diego, where do you take them in the morning to get either coffee or breakfast or whatever? I'm taking them to Zumba, which is on Chesterfield Road in uh, Chesterfield Street in in, uh, Cardiff, Mm -hmm. because you can sit outside and listen to the surf you know, the, the waves breaking and, and drink really good coffee. So to me, I know one of your favorites is pipes right there in Cardiff. Yeah. A block away from that. Yeah. And, uh, yes, I'll, I'll say Zumba for morning coffee. And then I can't go buy a VG's donut. I mean, if you, Oh if, yeah. If you look the at lines are long. right now, yeah. yeah. Well, so that's, so that here's what you do huh. is you get up. I went there when we were there a month ago and I went to VG's and there was a line at six twenty in the morning. Oh my gosh. Because it was all the guys going for Dawn Patrol for a surf and they wanted a coffee and a donut. They were all surf dudes. <laughs> Everyone was in a line at 6.20 in the morning. I had, I was like seventh person in line at VG's Donuts at 20 past six in the morning. But, oh, my so gosh. What, and then I think uh, Zumba opens at seven. So if you can sort of time it around 6.45, right. get your VG's and then right hit Zumba as you go, you get a beautiful coffee and the best donut in America pretty much. Wow. Uh, and w- watch the surf. So that's a nice way to watch the sunrise. The next thing is, is, you know, there's a lot of great places for lunch here, you know, cause people don't think about lunch. People just usually like num, 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 and they eat their, whatever they can. You're, you're going, you're taking somebody for lunch and say, Hey, this is where you go for an hour, hour and a half. And you go and you get your lunch and then you go back to work or whatever. Where is it? Well, look, I'm, first of all, I'm going to apologize to anyone that lives east of the five, because if you're in San Diego, you've got to be near the beach. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go station, station Sushi in uh, Solana Beach mm-hmm. or I'm going to go Fish 101 in Cardiff. Mm-hmm. And both of those, you can smell the salt that is on the fish that you're eating. So that's, yeah. that's an important thing. It's something that we, we have actually some pretty good fish restaurants here in Tulsa, but you can't smell no. the ocean when you're eating that Come on, fish. Darren, 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 no, no, no. It's Tulsa. Come on. You're, you're nowhere near the ocean. So we have a sushi restaurant about two blocks away from me here in Brookside in Tulsa that is owned by a guy who had some New York sushi restaurants. Uh-huh. And it's as good as anything we've had in San Diego. It's I'm super happy with it. So Offended. And, and Kenny's Kenny does a great, great <laughs> sushi rolls and very creative. So it's a little bit, we call it a little bit of San Diego in Tulsa, being able to walk yeah. two blocks to a really good sushi. So anyway, but I would say, yes, Station Sushi in, in Solana and a Fish 101 in uh, in Cardiff. Now, I know I you already told me what your answer is for this one. And I agree with you 100%. The place is so good. Where would you take them for dinner? Oh, Hani Sushi in Oceanside. So... Crazy enough, we've been gone for four years now. The development in around South Oceanside and up into the, you know, right up at Surf right away there, right at the end of the at the end yeah. of the, the pier in Oceanside. Mm-hmm. We we went up, had a really good dinner up there. But 
I mean, there's there's plenty of other places that you could go to. They were just what we had in seven days. We sort of pigged out on sushi when we were there. So that's sort of in my focus. But, you know, some of the Mexican restaurants, I mean, I, I had a great Roberto's burrito when I was there too. I know. You can't beat that either. So there's so much good food here. It's, it's like, yeah. how's the food in Tulsa, by the way? Food in Tulsa. So Tulsa, if people ask me about Tulsa and they go, what's Tulsa like? And I go, the vibe in Tulsa is like Austin, Texas was 15 years ago. So mm-hmm. it's a real foodie music vibe. And a lot of people from around the country are moving to places like Tulsa right now. So, you know, it's we see a lot of interstate license plates on cars and people come in for a lot of – there's a lot of medical medical stuff here. It's a medical hub. So, mm-hmm. you know, so anyway, and then we've got Bensonville, Arkansas, about an hour and a half away from us. That's where Walmart's based. So mm-hmm. uh, that's a cool place too. So between the two, it's a, it's a cool little region actually. Well, Darren, I do want to thank you for your time. And um, I know you're a, a, what do you call yourself? Tulsa, Tulsa, little, are Tulsan? You, Tulsan? Are you a Tulsa? No, no, I'm a San Diego that lives in Tulsa. Well, I'm an Australian. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, I'm a West Australian San Diego that's living in Tulsa. There we go. <laughs> Well, please give my best to your wife, Rosemary. Thanks, Thomas. And, all the best yeah. to all the best to your family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'll, so we, um that, we talk a lot more than just on podcasts. You yeah, and I talk I know, once we, every couple of weeks. And I appreciate appreciate all your support that we've been through in the last twelve months. And and I know that uh, you know, you guys have a lot of support for Corinna and your family over there too. So really appreciate it, mate. And I appreciate hey. all the chat. We're always here for you, bro. And I, I just want to say that he will not say it, but I, I believe that he should be the second punter inducted in the Pro Football Hall of Fame behind Ray Guy. They should put him right next to each other, maybe put his on top of, of Ray Guy's. And uh, that's two-time Pro Bowler, former Charger, former Minnesota Viking, former Amsterdam Admiral, former Aussie Rules football player, uh, one of the greatest players, uh, what, Melbourne, 150 heroes of the last 150 years. I, I looked you up a little bit, by the way. Yeah, I, I see you did, man. So, and the, you know when you start to feel old, when you say former this and former that, former and former, I'm okay. former. That's, I'm not a current anything. I'm just former everything. What do you t- <laughs> and, and I'll tell you what, he will <laughs> – I've seen him boom punts and he can still do it, but that's Darren Bennett. And this is Rick Willis in San Diego. And I will talk to you sooner than later. 